1: Happy Labor Day to you. Libby returns on Thursday. Labour Day has been a holiday in Canada since 1894. It originated in the first workers' rallies of the Victorian era, and workers would mark the day with various activities, including parades, speeches, games, amateur competitions, and picnics. The holiday then promoted working-class solidarity and belonging during a time of rapid industrialization. Since World War II, fewer and fewer people have participated in Labor Day activities, although there are rallies being held today for union members, including in downtown Toronto. Many Canadians now devote the Labor Day holiday to leisure activity and family time ahead of back to school. Joining us to reflect on the history of Labor Day, Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hey, squad, thanks for taking some of your holiday to be with us. Hi,
2: Jane. Hi, everyone. Hello.
1: Bill, I will start with you on the changing times around Labor Day.
3: Well, certainly the times uh, have changed and I think our CARP members uh, who are older will remember a much more labor focused uh, weekend than uh, we see now. And certainly Labor Day has turned into get ready for back to school and back to work uh, work day almost uh, to the point that uh, we might want to suggest that uh, people organizing these events change the day to another time of the uh, year since uh, people are distracted uh, on uh, on this weekend. And, and maybe it's not to be too su- surprised that they're not uh, thinking of the real uh, background. And with all the talk these days about uh, our labour needs, our labour shortages, the need for for better uh, training, uh, it probably would be helpful if we can came back to more focus on the real purpose
2: of Labor Day.
1: Interesting perspective. David, what about you?
2: Well, I agree with Bill, but I think it's a long time. I mean, when I was, I guess, growing up, and dating myself, it was very heavily associated with the union movement and labor often was used as a synonym for union mm-hmm. members. And we've seen a steady um, erosion of union participation in uh, the so-called labor movement to the point now where the majority of union members are in public service unions and not in in private sector unions. So it it goes back to the dictionary definition of labor, meaning work. And there is one interesting glimmer I did find, I'll throw out there uh, for your consideration in the statement um, by the Minister of Labor. Um, I've got it in front of me here, Monty McNaughton. Uh, recognizing, I think, um, our generation, the Zoomer generation, sort of reinventing retirement and stubbornly continuing to participate in the workforce, whether not retiring at all or coming back into the workforce or working part-time. But in his statement, um, he did say, uh, "Quoting, we're bringing health care and dental benefits to millions of part-time and and precarious workers, and also he says introducing foundation. Rights for those in the gig economy. I found those are kind of interesting. I have no comment on you know what those measures are or whether they're going to be any good. But the fact that they're now talking about part time and gig economy, at least acknowledging that it exists, suggests that maybe they do recognize that the old rigidity of labor versus non labor uh, is being muddied a little bit. I think led by the Zoomer generation.
1: And we will talk more about the, the changing labor force and the needs uh, within the labor force at, at the moment. But first, Peter, uh, as reflecting back, 1894 was a completely different Labor Day than in 2022.
4: Yeah. And and in those days, um, labor generally worked Monday to Saturday. So um, Labor Day was a much needed and much enjoyed day off, you know, Um we we can't even conceive of the hours that common laborers put in back then and you know the danger of their jobs and the um the wear and tear it had on the bodies long time and you know um just recognizing these people who sort of built the province and um you know sort of uh, you know their whole lives went into this physical job and they died early and and mm-hmm. uh you know it's much different now but uh you know um that that kind of um you know that kind of uh we we can remember the people who sort of built up the province and and did so under on, under you know, low wages and, and very uh, poor working conditions.
1: Right. Back back when it was not a foregone conclusion that you would leave your workday alive and well, there were a lot of deaths on the jobs. Right. You know, you think about the coal mines and, and various early factories and that kind of thing. And yeah. also the fighting for a two-day weekend, right? Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. I would like you to call in as well our Zoomer radio listeners if you're interested in uh, reflecting back on the days when Labor Day meant something different than it does now. Uh your your comments perhaps as a Zoomer how you've morphed your own profession or your own working situation into something different than maybe a decade or two ago. Our phone lines are open 416-360-0740 or toll free 1 1- 866 740 Let's riff a bit on what David was commenting on there, the Zoomer workforce and how that is being acknowledged at Queen's Park by the Ford Tories. We know there is a big cohort of workers between 55 and 65 preparing for retirement in some fashion and concerns as well that there are 400,000 jobs in the province that are going unfulfilled. Bill, how do these dynamics affect the labor force at the moment?
3: Well, certainly uh, we need to have the older employees still be involved in, in, in the workforce, and we need to have employers understand how they have to adjust uh, their working conditions and their policies to make it p- possible and uh, and uh, attractive for older uh, workers to continue uh, to work. And this is something that's happening slowly, but we're still seeing a lot of reticence of uh, employers to make sure that uh, they're making the kind of adjustments that will encourage older older workers to either stay on or come or come back to, to work. And this is going to demand a whole new approach, I think, to, to uh, the, way we, the way we hire, uh, the kind of hours that are being worked, the kind of flexibility that's allowed in uh, uh, vacations and, and time off, and the understanding that uh, uh, this is now a workers' market. Not a, not a job, mm-hmm. uh, uh, market. And, uh, if it's, if it's really going to have an effect, it needs both businesses themselves and government to support and produce the kind of, uh, uh, parameters in the workforce that'll mean, uh, older, Ontario's want to get back into the
1: workforce. So, David, how do we get to the place that Bill is talking about in terms of the dynamic between an employer and an employee who is between 55 and 65? Should the employer uh, be incentivizing this individual to continue to stay on if they've, you know, they have the experience, education, the drive, the success? Or should, or is it a combination where the older worker should be going to their employer? And looking for more benefits, perhaps.
2: Well, I think it is a combination, but I think that um, the reality is that the whole uh, uh, siloing is, is is what's breaking down. Some companies are recognizing that um, the, the model they were using as recently as a few years ago of you know let's get rid of the older workers because they're more expensive and let's hire in younger workers who are cheaper. That's breaking down because uh, a lot of the skills and experience leave the building when that older worker retires, and you don't necessarily uh, make make up that lost ground. So some companies are responding already. Uh, and looking for ways to keep uh, the older workers on board. I think it's happening a little bit more quickly in the United States than here, but it's slowly coming in here. But also I would point out, um, if not refer to the gig economy, many older workers are taking matters into their own hands and just carving out gigs or part-time or hybrid roles for themselves. So it's not as if 100% of the supply of jobs rest with employers. Ten years ago, Uh, Less than 100,000 Canadians over the age of 65 had an office in their homes. Uh, Today, it's 800,000 have an office in their home. Well, what are they doing? They're doing some part-time gig, side hustle, what have you. So we're seeing what we're seeing is the breaking down of this kind of monolithic structure: employer, employee, and nothing else in between. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real story here because it gives a lot more flexibility to the older worker who may not want to keep working full time, who may. have a profitable side hustle. Uh, We're we're going into an all-of-the-above model
1: Right. Uh, Peter, one more thought here before we move on and change topics. Uh, how do we square this with the, these 55 to 65-year-olds who are considering changing up the way they do their work, 400,000 empty jobs, and a millennial generation or even the younger p- people uh, who are in the Generation Z a category thinking about work completely differently than we all have traditionally?
4: Yeah, uh, it's funny. The it's it's our generation, Jane, Gene, and and the boomers who um, who you know worked um, worked <laughs> work for like fifty, sixty hour work weeks and did everything for the company they were at, and you know just kept working, working, working. And I don't think the younger generation at all feels that way. I, I mean, I, I know for a fact they don't. Like I'm trying to get them to come back into the office. You know, from working at home for two years, and it's it's a difficult chore. You know, they they've gotten used to working at home. They've gotten used to the casualness of it, the flexibility of it. They, um, you know, they have the hammer now because they can. There's it's a good job market, and they can call the shots. So, you know, I I think the this sort of, you know, this movement towards a four day work week will will play into the millennials' hands as much as it will to. You know, older workers. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know those two, those two ends of the job market share the same, you know, the the, the same uh, ideas on on how they want to work, and and it'll be, it won't be a forty-hour work week, it won't be a five-day work week, and it'll be much more flexible and changeable than it has been for, uh, you know, Gen X and and Boomer so far.
1: That's interesting, Peter, that as senior editor at Zoomer magazine, you're getting some pushback uh, from some of your team. Yeah,
4: well, I don't want to see my team, but people people within the, the office. Yeah. okay yeah.
1: Be, right but and I get it you know it's been two and a half years where people have a lot of people who were not public facing uh, have enjoyed working from home it cuts Absolutely. down it cuts down on everything right it cuts Absolutely. down on wardrobe costs lunch travel costs cost. travel yeah. costs like I get it uh, yeah. but but you know Peter um, Moses as we all know here has implemented a policy where people have to come into the office three days a week starting this coming week and you know you know, we're hearing that at the City of Toronto and the Ontario government as well, this whole hybrid way of working. It seems fair to me. You... Oh, that was one of the air show planes, I think, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sort of seems to be the way of the future, right, Peter?
4: I, I, I think employers are going to have to, you know, um, weigh the risk of losing workers or, um, you know, working on a compromise somehow. And... Um, I think in a tight job market the employers have an edge and in the current job market the employees have an edge and and so um you know we we might be able to see some of these things come in like uh flexible hours and shorter work weeks that appeal to um older workers they, they'll just come in organically as uh, as an effort to retain or recruit uh younger workers Older workers will take advantage of, of those uh, you know those those changes in the workforce and and uh, you know um, transition into uh, semi retirement or pre retirement whatever you want to call it.
1: Okay, we will change topics now and you're always welcome to call in whatever interests you that we're discussing here with our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugrich, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. The lines to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty or toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. It's Jane for Libby, Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And uh, the new COVID advisory table, which now is going by the name the Ontario... Public Health Emergencies Science Advisory Committee. So you've heard us, if you're a longtime Zoomer radio listener, you've heard us here on Fight Back talking with Dr. Peter who who is the head of the COVID-19 science advisory table and more recently, Dr. Fahad Razak. Well, as of today, that table as we know it is dissolved. And there were hundreds of volunteer experts as part of that advisory table. Now there are 15 experts on this Ontario Public Health Emergency Science Advisory Committee. And David, they they are much more tethered to Public Health Ontario, which is a government agency, and far less independent than our previous table.
2: Well, I don't know how... uh, I can't measure how independent the previous table was versus this table. Um, I think that the degree to which it gets filtered through public health... In general, uh, I personally would uh, would applaud because I think that part of the uh, problems we had in the past was that the public health uh, industry, if I could call it that, was very, very troubled in the way it processed and distributed information. I'm not saying that they didn't have some good excuses or challenges, but uh, I think in future, when they look back on this and whoever is designing curricula of public health and universities, they're going to look at COVID as a monumental failure of communication, inconsistency, contradiction, stories changing, regulations coming in without rhyme or reason that could ever be explained. And so the degree to which it gets forced through the public health um, channel and, and, and is forced to make sense and reconcile itself, Um, I think that's all to the good. I don't I can't judge as a layman, you know, the value of the advice that the previous health table gave versus the current ones. But they do need to get the communications piece sorted out. And they certainly didn't do that uh, in the past.
1: Well, what we enjoyed here on Fightback, Bill, was uh, it, there was very much an independent flavor to what Dr. Peter Uni and others on the table would say to us. Whereas now, uh, our Fightback producers, Jeremy and Zeev, they have to go through the Ministry of Health in order to get someone from the advisory table on fight back. So you don't, there's not that independence of, of opinion. You, there's no more connection between the individuals on the table and the media. There's the middleman of the ministry. Yeah, you're right.
3: And, and how are we going to uh, get the kind of uh, detail information? Uh, numbers counts uh interpretation uh, of them good advice that we did get through the table david's quite right it's, uh, the the communication certainly had its uh deficiencies, but at least there was an attempt at uh, communication. This sounds like more of an attempt to control the message, not to broaden the communication, and that's what's worrisome Worrisome about it. Uh, the public have gotten used to, uh, to uh, having regular reports of, of uh, even contradictory interpretation of numbers and where we're going so they can make their own uh, uh, judgment. Uh, making the table uh less uh, less independent if Independent at all, less people able to talk. Will they be able to come on air and talk to people uh, like you and and the other staff there on a regular uh, basis with uh, explaining the uh, the science behind decisions uh, uh, that are that are being uh, made? It's very it's very worrisome, and we have seen across the country some other provinces who have uh, uh, who have started controlling the, the message uh, too. And uh, whether or not the message is is accurate isn't the main thing. It, what what really happens, especially with our older carp members, is they begin doubting what they're hearing. They begin second guessing it. Uh, they begin having all the questions David just talked about about are we are we getting the information that we need? And it's making them fearful again of the unknown of COVID in the uh, future. Uh, government seems to think that uh, uh, COVID is winding down and over. Over much more confidently than the general public or certainly the general older public are feeling these days. Yeah,
1: I would agree with all of that you've said there, Bill. So, Peter, it's not that we can't have Dr. Fahad Razak on fight back. We we can invite him on. He can come on as an expert, but he does he's not connected to all the information that this new table will have as being an extension of Public Health Ontario.
4: Right. He's, he's He'll be more of a bureaucrat um, and have to be mindful of, of uh, the government's direction and massive key messaging and whatnot but um you know in in the end i i I think uh, you know this is just a natural um, winding down of something that came up as a response to covid um, often um, you know although we appreciated its independence we often got conflicting messages from it like one one doctor would say one thing and then guaranteed the news would find another doctor on the table to say something else and another doctor to deny you know he he ever said that like it wasn't as uniform a message as we would have liked anyway and so um i i, I think this is just a natural progression as as the pandemic hopefully winds down so too Will will these boards and restrictions and everything and and uh, you know, it, it's a natural progression. I think.
1: Well, those are fair observations as well. Okay, Zoomer Squad, we have one more topic to talk okay. on, and we will, we will reflect on Terry Fox. It's been about forty-two years, give or take a couple of days, since Terry Fox ended his marathon of hope. And little did Terry know, as a very young man, that he would continue to offer hope in finding a cure for cancer more than four decades later. Uh, Peter, I'll just go back to you first, because one of your team, Mike Crisolago, has written a poignant piece on Terry, which you can read at Everything.com. Talk about the legacy of Terry Fox.
4: Yeah, on on um he, you know, like we, we grow up here, and, and we, we, you know, we, we've learned so much about him. We know him so well. Um, but I, w- I would point you to a docu- uh, documentary made in the U.S. Um, on Terry Fox, and and it's speaking to a U.S. audience who's not familiar with the, you know, the type of person he was or the type of athlete he was. And um, it, it, it's instructive to watch that. It was made by ESPN, and it's um, done. I think the narrator is Steve Nash, who helped direct it to the basketball player, yeah. and, and it's a, it's a fascinating look at someone we take for granted, and a new look and a just a, you know rethinking him not as only as a man, but he was a tremendous athlete. He ran a marathon every day, right? You know, for for his entire time and until he couldn't do it anymore. And and uh, you know, I I I, I would direct you to read the article on everythingzoom.com and try to look up that uh, documentary.
1: Right, Steve Nash, a, a famous Canadian as well. Uh let's Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice that he's involved in that project yeah. reflecting on one of our own icons here in Canada. Yeah. Uh Bill, your thoughts on Terry Fox?
3: Well, I it, it uh, I have some uh, had some personal uh, contact uh, and uh, understanding and I'm I'm you know first of all uh, it's it's amazing to see how uh, a, a, a a fundraising activity like this can go on for forty years. As you know, I spent part of my working career in the fundraising business, and fund fundraising activities have cycles, and they come and they go. And for one to stay like this one has for forty years is absolutely amazing. But I have found that uh, some of the the history has been romanticized uh, a little bit. I was working as a consultant uh, to. Alf, the late Alf Jorgensen, who was the head of the Cancer Society in Nova Scotia at the time that that uh, Terry started his uh, run. And he really had to push hard. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he wouldn't take no for an answer. But in those days, walkers, runners, cyclists were always approaching charities, expecting support. And the charities weren't always able to support them. And when he came through uh, the Maritimes, he was still unknown. Mm-hmm. And it it wasn't until he left the Maritimes and went to Ontario that people began to recognize and support uh, what he was uh, what he was doing. And I think not only was he a phenomenal athlete, but if he hadn't been uh, such a such a dynamic personality who would go on no matter what because there were uh, people when he first started off who just weren't interested in uh, uh, supporting him and giving the things that he uh, needed and it was own, his own force of personality by the time he hit ontario that made the country start to take notice well,
4: thank Yeah, you. and the, yeah. the
3: documentary shows him um
4: you know running through quebec and getting uh you know, honked off the street, off the side of the road by yes. these angry truckers and and uh, you know, car drivers who you know just get out of the way. Right,
1: right. who yeah. probably had no idea who he was. No right? idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last word to you, David, on Terry Fox. Well,
2: uh, I endorse what Peter and Bill said. It's interesting that sometimes people who are legends, who become legends, whose image becomes sort of permanently, you know created as a as this guiding light, and then it becomes fashionable to tear it down years later, somebody unearthed some deep, dark secret, and he really wasn 't like this or she was like that. but in the case of Terry Fox, the dimensions that we understand, the more we look into it uh, peter 's excellent point about just being an athlete imagine a imagine a healthy person, imagine a person in full training. Running that run every day. Um, so what kind of an athlete was he? What kind of spirit did he have? And Bill's point about, you know, how many miles did he have to run with no support or little, minimal support? So I think what happens is that the, the courage and the, the remarkable uh, aspect of this individual become even stronger. Uh, as time goes on and, you you know, you, d- you can dig deeper and your admiration only increases. So uh, that's what I uh, that's what my takeaway is.
1: Nice. OK, we will leave it there, Zoomer Squad. Thank you for taking time out of your holiday Labor Day Monday to join us. Thanks, June.
2: Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks,
1: Bill Van Gorder is the Chief Operating and Policy Officer at CARP. David Cravet is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. You can hear them every Monday here on Fight Back after the noon news. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back on this Labor Day, there is a record number of applicants in Ontario nursing school programs this fall. What does this mean for our current care? staffing crisis. We discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one back with Libby's Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is taking a few days off. She'll be back on Thursday. Well, it sounds like great news for the nursing profession in Ontario and to help alleviate staffing shortages in hospitals. According to the Council of Ontario Universities, more than 13,000 people applied to a university nursing program this year. That is up about 8% compared Compared with 2021 and 25% compared with the years 2018 and 2019. Joining us to talk about what this means for the future of healthcare, Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. Charlene, thanks for spending some of your Labor Day with us.
5: My pleasure, Jane. Thanks for inviting me. And before we start, I just want to say happy
1: Labor Day to everyone. Today's
5: the day when we celebrate what working people and their unions have done to fight for those safe jobs and worker protections. So to everybody marching and celebrating today, happy Labor Day.
1: And give us a little bit of a backdrop on SEIU Healthcare, how many workers you represent and what kinds of jobs they do. Sure, thank you. We represent around 60,000 healthcare workers in the province of Ontario. We're Canadian
5: wide and also in the states in Puerto Rico. So, uh, healthcare workers range from uh, support workers, community home care, uh, nursing as the topic of the day, uh, service workers, paramedics, basically from birth
1: to death is who we represent. So, Charlene, what do you think has led to this increase in applications to nursing school? You know, Jane,
5: I, I I really do want to recognize the healthcare workers who, you know, carried us through the you know worst pandemic of our lives. I recall back thinking, preparing for this interview about how those heroes showed up every day. It seems like a long time ago, but when the pots and pans were banging outside mm-hmm. and they were being recognized by everyone as being true heroes, I believe that that moment inspired people to reconsider their future professions. You know, seeing them and their unconditional commitment to care for people in the worst of conditions, I think inspired a lot of people and a lot of young people coming out of school to look at healthcare as a profession. So I do want to recognize and honor them for that. Uh, you know, in the pandemic too, it, it you know, it's a calling and those people who are looking at going into the nursing profession, I believe it is a calling and I think this pandemic, you know, to look at the silver side of it, uh definitely inspired some people to do what was in their was always in the calling for them is to come into the healthcare profession. So I believe that's what um, definitely did ha- contribute to some of it. And to some of them that I've had conversations with, you know, they realize that healthcare is in a crisis right now and they're starting to think, well, could this be a profession for me? You know, could I help out? So I believe that that's all, you know, contributing to it. And some of the incentives that are there definitely. So it's good news. Uh, it 's just it 's a moment for all of us to reflect on the past mistakes and to look forward to in this moment when we have people interested, how do we provide every single means to keep them you know in the school to keep them um, staying in the profession once they come into it because honestly Jane, the recruitment has never been the major problem i 've had many people go into the profession it 's to keep them in there when they get into the right. into the work right.
1: and uh, you know what I want to harness that thought and in addition to your talk about a calling, for those nurses who have been out there doing their profession for decades, for years, for, for a long time and have live through the pandemic and work through the pandemic. These are the individuals who I think would be interesting to hear from right now. So I'm going to open up the phone lines. I mean, they're always open through Fight Back. Uh, for, for those of you who are nurses, th- talk about that calling and staying there no matter how many hours, no matter how tired you are, because you feel the need to continue nursing. The numbers to call are 416 360 Forty or one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Charlene, I'll get your thoughts on that. What would motivate someone to become a nurse after all the horror stories of long hours, no pay increases or very little pay increases, burnout, depression, anxiety, all of that?
5: Wow, Jane. I mean, you just really did nail the, the um, you know, the life of a, a healthcare professional right now. Um, you know, in the recent CBC article that I read, the mom of that, you know, young woman that's thinking about making nursing her career, she was happy to see her daughter. And I know many of the nurses listening can, you know, can definitely think about the having these conversations about their children. And this is what they're telling me is, of course, we want them to be in the healthcare profession. But we do also caution them about the working conditions. And I, I'll, you know, I just hang on to hope that I hope that the government and the decision makers and the people that have the power to change things recognize that there are some simple solutions here. These nurses I'm sure you're going to hear when they get on the on the calls that it's the working conditions, it's the mental health support, it's the you know, wages. I mean the premier could definitely deal with bill 124 so that these nurses could negotiate strong mental health support after coming out of the, the work that they did during the pandemic there are registered practical nurses that need some wage adjustments all of these things along with the good news about them going into colleges is going to definitely uh, be a positive factor for them coming into the profession and staying these nurses should be talking about preceptorship as well i mean above all the strain of dealing with recovery from the pandemic and you know the crisis that we have in healthcare right now they don't have the time for the additional uh, orientation and training of nurses coming into the profession so Along with the colleges having the great applications, we have to prepare those that are going to be training them and those that are coming into the hospitals and long-term care uh, to have the best conditions that they stay there. And that needs to be also added to this positive news about the, um, uh, the colleges and the applications.
1: Well, in addition to the incentives that could be coming, what are the current incentives that have upped those enrollment numbers to the extent we're seeing this fall?
5: Well, definitely. I mean, some of the uh, tuitions and and those are obviously attractive to those that, you know, may not have had that opportunity before. So that's a positive thing. The announcement of, you know, the um, additional positions that are available, I mean, they definitely have to be increased. We need much more than we need thousands of nurses coming into the profession. So we need to make room for them when they get in there. But again, I, I can't stress enough, Jane, that the, this path, this journey includes when they come out of those colleges, which, you know, is going to be four years from now and two for registered practical nurses. But mm-hmm. when they come out, the conditions have to be there to welcome them, to show them that we do respect them and that we have the working conditions to keep them safe, that they can not be working the 14, 16 hours that they are expected to do right now, and that they can depend on making this a career and retiring with dignity and their health, mental and physical health, intact at the end of it.
1: Charlene, is the tuition completely subsidized by the government at this stage? Uh, you know, Jane,
5: there's different uh, there's different in- initiatives out there and incentives. So each one is different, different and, uh, you know, for each, uh, whether it's PSWs and the RPNs and the RNs, they're all different, but they definitely do help. So, uh, yeah, you'd have to kind of like research all of them, but it definitely is helpful, obviously, any kind of monetary support, whether it's in tuitions or obviously in the wages is going to help us get to where we need in the healthcare profession.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Charlene Stewart. She is the president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents 60,000 healthcare workers. And uh, the increased enrollment uh, this fall for nurses who, as we all know, were deemed as heroes in the early days of the pandemic. Some of that is worn off a bit, but certainly we know that there are staffing issues in many hospitals at the moment. What do you think, Charlene, is keeping nurses on the job uh, in the hospitals where ERs have to be, have had to be temporarily closed, issues around ICUs, et cetera?
5: Well, again, we talked about it, the calling. You know, I mean, they are, and I've referenced so many times that they're experiencing PTSD just as, you know, soldiers go into war and come back with that you know that that condition after seeing what they've witnessed and what they've been through and just pushing their bodies to total exhaustion you know that's what they're doing it is definitely a calling they they care for the people that you know they're responsible for and whether that be in the emergencies or ICU or whether it be in community care or long-term care it definitely is a calling where healthcare workers will burn themselves out to exhaustion and sometimes you know as we know They hurt themselves. That you know, safety is an issue in the in the workforce now too. That we need to deal with. Conditions of work are making it difficult to to fulfill your. You've heard them talk about this too. Fulfill their obligations under their licenses. They're worried about that. But at the end of the day, those who do stay, you know, are are staying because of their obligations to Mm. the care and their calling. But. Not all of them are going to be able to continue to do that, because even those that stay, no matter what, are saying that the conditions are getting so bad that their own safety they have to take into account. And, you know, families are saying to them, you can't continue to work these, you know, extended hours under these
1: working conditions. Right. For how long does the calling trump personal safety and well-being, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Um, just as a final thought before we let you go and change topics, Charlene, uh, some of the positives and, and, you know, removing the pandemic from the equation, some of the positives of going into nursing as a profession.
5: Well, you know, that was a calling that I had looked at when I was in high school, Jane. And, you know, it is, it's, it definitely is in your DNA. And it's the nursing profession tends to be a generational thing, too. You hear that so many times. My mother was, my grandmother was, my sister was. You know, historically, they, they were truly angels, the nursing profession, and every, every classification in nursing. Truly, we need health care. You know, you can't get robots and computers to do health care. So we need to absolutely give all of these heroes, the past heroes and the future heroes who are going to college, the respect, the dignity, the safety, the support, the wages, the recognition now and long into the future, because we definitely need them.
1: Great message on this Labor Day. Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. Thanks for joining us on Zoomer Radio. My pleasure. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. It is 12.45 now, Jane, for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, our final segment for today, Alberta is luring young adults who live in Ontario to go west for work and much cheaper housing. What will this mean for both provinces? We discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is off for a few days. Thank you for joining me. Well, you've heard the ads on the radio. Alberta Tourism is promoting that province as a place for young Ontario adults to move for work and to buy a starter home for $400,000. It sounds like an attractive option, doesn't it? But how realistic is it that there will be an exodus from this province to Alberta and you are welcome to call in on this or you know if there are any other provinces that you perhaps are thinking about moving to or your children are thinking about moving to because of the high cost of living and housing in Ontario particularly in the GTA and across southern Ontario numbers to call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1-866 740 4740 Jesse Davies is a realtor and founder of Century Twenty One Elevate Real Estate in Calgary, Alberta, and joins us on the line now. Jesse, thank you.
6: Hi, how's it going, Jane?
1: Going very well. I'm enjoying my work here on Labor Day. Uh, you're on the job there as well. I'm sure real estate agents work around the clock, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was up until about 11 p.m. last night dealing with a competing offer. So,
1: yep. I know my dad has been in real estate for decades and I know the lifestyle well. So what's going on um, in the job and housing market in Alberta that there's a need for Ontario residents to move there?
6: Yeah, I mean, we're really seeing um, some traction picking up uh, in the Calgary market. Um, I'm sure you're aware that the last four or five years, the, the rest of Canada's housing market, you know, on the West Coast in BC and then kind of from Saskatchewan, East of that, um, the markets have really accelerated in the last five years, um, where Calgary's kind of been held down by um, the downturn in the oil and gas markets. So I think over those last five years, um, the province uh, has really tried to diversify away from being so dependent on oil and gas. And so we're really starting to see everything click on all cylinders with um, a lot of big corporations moving here, both on the tech side, the healthcare space. Um, and so it's great to see some alternative energy starting to move into the space. Um, and then obviously, when the oil and gas market isn't doing as well, the commercial um, leasing spaces become a little more attractive um, on the leasing side. So, so we're seeing a lot of immigration here.
1: Right. And so you have similar industries that are evolving in Calgary, Edmonton, Lethbridge than what we, than what we uh, have here in Southern Ontario as well
6: exactly yeah and so i mean that's really exciting for us because um, i've been in the industry for about 16 years i'm born and raised in calgary Um, i went to the university of lethbridge so i'm super passionate about the city i I love the city Um, i have two young children that i plan to raise in the city and i think calgary has a lot of attractive things to bring to the table um, when a family is considering moving from Toronto.
1: Now, why would Alberta want Ontarians to come west? Uh, clearly not enough people in Alberta to staff a lot of these positions.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, kind of with um, what's transpired with COVID and kind of the work from home and, and people kind of starting to enjoy that work-life balance and You know, not necessarily having to be in the location where your home office is and having the ability to work remotely, um, I think has brought that conversation to the forefront for families that really can't afford a single family home and be comfortable and have their own backyard um, in the markets like Vancouver and Toronto. Um, So I've worked with numerous families that have decided to make the decision to relocate to Calgary. And honestly, they're blown away of what they can buy and you know, the certain price points in comparison to those markets where they're from.
1: Okay, let's talk about that, Jesse. Everybody would be enthused to hear about lower prices. So when you're talking about uh, the money you would make, perhaps in an office and a desk job um, versus what you would make here, and then the cost of living, groceries and a home. Tell us about those aspects.
6: Yeah, and I'm not sure if uh, your listeners follow, but uh, Calgary is continuously within the top five most affordable cities in North America. So they factor in everything from real estate prices to cost of living, um, energy, you know, what it costs to heat your home. So obviously being rich in resources here, that has its benefits. Um, Calgary also is is a very white-collar city. Um, So we have a lot of um, downtown core workers Um, both in the healthcare, oil and gas, financial markets, so uh, engineering. So there is a lot of high-paying jobs um, in the city. And then obviously, I think just the attractiveness of our location, Um, being so close to the mountains. I think families are kind of blown away of being able to get to Cadmore and Banff within 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you're a hiker, you enjoy the outdoors. It's absolutely amazing. You don't have to take a weekend off. You could drive out there for a day hike and be back to your house in time for dinner. So um, I think these types of amenities kind of at your doorstep. uh, A lot of people appreciate
1: Oh, I want to go to the phones now, Jesse. We have some Zoomer radio listeners who want to get in on this conversation about moving to Alberta, the lure to Alberta, where the salaries are as high and the houses are much cheaper. 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Dan is calling from Hamilton. Hi, Dan, go ahead.
2: Hi. Um, so is this, this thing in, with the enticing people to uh, Alberta where, I don't know, didn't they, did they have a change in their government or their different leader? And is everything geared to income there? Because you say everything's gone lower. But at one time, they were trying to entice uh, people to work the, the oil wells.
1: Right. And, and so, Jesse, you're saying that that dynamic has changed. Um, So I think
6: that people have come to the realization that, um, you know, the mandate of the world and kind of political powers that be are, you know, climate change is is becoming a big part of um, our lives and something that we have to focus on. So I think as Albertans, we've come to that realization um but i also think at the same time that that resource isn't going anywhere in the next 10 years so um you know obviously the country is is dependent on that and we obviously want to take advantage of that and and help people with their jobs having said that i think alternative energy um other you know industries are um are definitely starting to accelerate here in the city so yes we're we're definitely open to that um And obviously in Calgary, um, we do have a um, kind of a left-leaning city council and have had that uh, for over, I would say, about seven years now. So um, I guess hopefully that answers your listeners' question.
1: Jesse, understanding you're a realtor and not with uh, Alberta tourism, what kind of response has there been to this ad campaign? What are you hearing among people out there?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty tough five years for Albertans, and especially ones that have owned properties, Um, just because our market, while we see the rest of Canada really accelerating in pricing and kind of reaping the benefits of being a homeowner, um, a lot of people that have owned, you know, in the last five years, haven't seen those types of gains or those returns. So the last year and a half, we're really starting to see, you know, competing offers, prices really accelerate, similar to what you guys would have experienced out east there for the last five years. So. Um, Definitely some exciting times. And another reason why I think the Calgary real estate market, uh, both in the detached, the row townhomes and apartment sectors, are setting up really well um, to see some great gains and outperform the rest of Canada just because of how affordable our single family town townhomes and apartment uh, sectors are.
1: Okay, and that's what grabbed me when I was listening to these ads, which seem to be on very high rotation here in Toronto. Um, the The fellow who's talking in the ad says, and the cherry on top was being able to buy a home, my first home for $400,000. What is a $400,000 home in Calgary or Edmonton or Lethbridge?
6: Yeah, so I, I can really only speak on the Calgary market because that's where um, I kind of specialize okay. and, and where I reside. Sure. Um, I don't really follow the other markets. And if I do, I usually refer to another agent. But, um, you know, $400,000 is, is going to get you a starter home. Um, and so it's, it's going to get you something that you could have probably three bedrooms up um, with a basement, um, most likely not with the garage. But, for example, I was having a competing offer situation in a northwest community, um, which is probably about a 20-minute drive from the downtown core. Um, it was half of a duplex, which was newly renovated. It featured three bedrooms up, a fully developed basement with one bedroom, a full bathroom, brand new furnace, brand new hot water tank. All the big six have been upgraded. Um, we went, uh, we had four uh, offers. We were priced at $380,000. Um, it is conditionally sold, but I I can kind of comment that it did go significantly over what we were asking, um, but that would kind of be what you would have. You have your own enclosed backyard, so if you didn't have pets or children, it's kind of a perfect fit. in uh, community that um, is very family-orientated with lots of green spaces, walking paths, and good quality schools.
1: All right, that's very informative for a lot of people here, not just uh, those who are 55 plus, but the children of those who are 55 plus. And you know, here in Toronto, Jesse, the price has come down. The average price of a home has come down to we're about one million eighty thousand is sort of the average home price in in the GTA. So that home you're describing for four hundred thousand dollars is really attractive to a lot of young people here in Toronto. And on. on. On that note, what about starting a new life? You say you have young children. I would think that that would be be heart-wrenching for a young family in Ontario, if they have their parents here, aunts, uncles, cousins, and so on, to to just go forth and go west and, and start a new life. What are your thoughts on that?
6: I would just have to say that Calgary is an amazing um, city. We're we're very kind people. Um, I think the great thing about Calgary is we do have um, a lot of immigration that goes on here, which I absolutely love the community that I am. I like to to call it like a a melting pot, which is kind of like a a political word, but um, it's just great to have a lot of diversity. Um, Lots of my children's friends are from different cultures, which I think helps children learn about the rest of the world. Um, and so on top of that, my, my sons are into uh, sports and there's great sports programs here. Uh, my sons go to top schools and, and, and the schooling is, is really great. The teachers are really engaged. Um, we have two rivers that run through the city, again, which I think are awesome for uh, children and going for walks. And like I mentioned, Canmore and Banff being about a 45 minutes to an hour and a half away. If you ever want to take the, the family on a ski trip. Really easy to do. Uh, it's not like you have to take the entire weekend off. You can make it a half day uh, day trip. Um, so
1: yeah, it's great to hear how Calgary is doing so well. Thank you so much for your time, Jesse. My pleasure, Jane. Thanks for having me on. Jesse Davies is a realtor and founder of Century 21 Elevate Real Estate in Calgary, Alberta. Jane, for Libby, I'll be back with you again tomorrow with our Recovering Politicians panel. Up next, the news with Steve Key and then the number ones at one with Robbie Lane.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.